Welcome to another episode of your Wild and Exposed podcast. Before we begin today's show, we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Precision Camera in Austin, Texas, the largest camera store between New York and L.A. Precision Camera is offering Wild and Exposed listeners a free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images with free shipping as well within the United States. To get this, go to our website at wildandexposed.com. On our homepage, go to the menu at the top right and go to our sponsors page. There, you'll find a quick link to Precision Camera. And once you're on their page, go to the option for a virtual consultation with one of their friendly and knowledgeable staff. They'll be more than happy to discuss and answer any questions that you might have for gear that you're interested in. At the conclusion of your visit, they'll give you a coupon code that will give you access to order this free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images. By supporting Precision Camera, you're also supporting your favorite podcast, Wild and Exposed. Now, on with today's show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're with Doug Gardner and Taylor Gray. We are out on a shoot that we can't talk about, but we thought it'd be a good opportunity to figure out a little bit more about Taylor. Just because... Just what I've learned in the last couple of days is he's done a lot of stuff. So I figured between you and I, we could just drill him. Yeah, grill him, break him in. Yep. I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> All seriousness, uh, this young man is very talented, uh, especially at the age, at the young, ripe age that he is. And he's had a pretty interesting life up to this point. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. That's exactly where we should start. Maybe you should just give us a history because I did that. Yesterday we were riding around doing some shooting together and actually we didn't do any shooting. We just rode <laughs> around together looking for stuff to shoot. But you, I mean, just talking to you, it was amazing all the stuff that you've done already. So give us a little background, just a little base information and then we'll just take it from there. Sure. So, yep. My name is Taylor Gray. Um, I've been doing photography for, and videography more recently for about six or seven years now. Um, and before I got into, I started as a photographer and slowly transitioned into video. And before I got into that, I was just, you know, your typical teenage kid and had no idea what I want to do with my life. And, uh, eventually I took my dad's Nikon D5100 on a two week backpacking trip through the Colorado Rockies. And that's what jump started my whole, uh, passion for photography and then later video. Um, just, I just, I had no idea what I was doing with this camera. I mean, I was, I was just clicking buttons and hoping it would go click. And <laughs> I took, but I came, I came home with over 2000 photographs and, it just gave me like this profound joy that I just had never, I'd never, and no other pastimes. Like I, you know, I'd skateboard with the friends, played in the school band, played in the soccer team, but nothing had kind of just sparked something like, like this camera had. So, um, after that, I just, I would 
come home every day after school and just pour through countless articles and YouTube tutorials on, oh, how do I take this type? How do I do this type of photography? And then on the weekends, I'd go out and capture it. So I th- I was 14 at the time. Wow. And <laughs> obviously I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. So <clears throat> a lot of my start was uh, doing cityscapes and I was really liking long exposures and stuff like that. So I wanted to go to these places in San Francisco and I had no way to get there because <laughs> I mean, I guess what I could take skateboard. I can, yeah. Yeah. 40, 40 minute drive. So that'd be quite the skateboard journey <laughs> to get there. Um, so, you know, I had to, I had to figure out how am I going to get myself to the city? So well, I was lucky enough. Both my parents were kind of, in. I kind of got them into photography. So rather than they'd take me to these places and rather than just sit in the car and wait while I'm shooting, they'd actually pick up a camera for themselves. And I kind of got, and it kind of became like a kind of cool family ordeal. That is cool. That is cool. That is something that, uh, it just makes it, I mean, it's not like, it doesn't speed it up. Right. I would always feel like, Oh, I got to go. Cause someone's waiting on me in the car, but having them out there is going to be kind of, I mean, you just get into it, right? And yeah. then you probably, was there a competition? Was it like my picture's better than your picture? No. No? No. <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. Not exactly. But it was fun. Like, it was just all good fun regardless. And um, But so, yeah, I was, I was shooting cityscapes and stuff. And it wasn't until like, well, obviously I went to Colorado. And I really took to the whole nature thing. But it wasn't until I went to Yosemite which is about four hours away that I was just like, okay, I kind of dove into a deeper niche of landscapes and nature photography and stuff like that. Um, and that was all great and really enjoyed diving into that. And then to get into video, um, I started doing time-lapse and that was my first introduction into, you know, you go from still pictures to shooting a bunch of still pictures and then putting those together and then the time lapse. And that kind of jump started my kind of fascination with video as well. And I kind of missed those good old days of shooting stills because it was so much more simple than what I'm, I don't even know everything there is to know about video yet, but it is way more complex than than still photography, but it's a lot more rewarding too. I think. Amen so. to that. I'll second that. Yep, it is. I agree with that too. Um, but anyways, I decided to after high school, I decided to pursue a four year degree at Oregon State University, uh, studying business marketing, and. I knew I wanted to do photography or videography in some sort of form as a career, at least in the beginning. But I also knew that uh, I wanted to have some sort of business background. (laughs) Got some squeaky chair action going on there. (laughs) These chairs are horrible. Um, I wanted to have some sort of business background uh, in case the photography video thing didn't work out for one reason. And then another reason is, I also wanted to learn more how to put myself out there. Because, I mean, nowadays, right, photography, video, it is such a competitive industry. Yes, it is. Especially when everyone's got one in their pocket, like something that can take some pretty good photos and videos in your pocket. So um, I wanted, I, I had friends um, that were also photographers, and I'd see them 
just get passed up. Like they're really good. Like they know their stuff, but they'd get passed up on jobs or just didn't know how to communicate with clients and things like that. And to, to people who are maybe not quite at their skill level even, but they're just better business people. Um, and so I kind of wanted to get more of a business sense and that's what I, that's what I did at school. And I just graduated this past June, um, got my degree and now I'm diving into the, the freelance world full time. Wow. Did you, did somebody, uh, give you guidance to go get that business degree over going to school for photography or going to school for art or whatever? Because I think it's brilliant. I just think having that business background, if you have the drive for something creative, I think you can figure that out. But figuring out the business stuff is brilliant to go and get that sort of sort of training. Did someone give you that or were you just like this? I Was it your own thought? Um, I think the way I kind of looked at it was I felt like I had a fairly good understanding of photography at the time and I and then there was a debate like should I go to film school because you know there's that's a lot that's the natural progression right? right yeah so and there was there are there were times during my four years of college where I was just like well not everything I'm learning is applicable going to be applicable right. in this industry because it's definitely more set towards more corporate business world and rather than small business um so yeah, there were definitely times where I was like, maybe I, you know, I don't know if this is the right route or anything, but there are definitely things I, I learned. And the way I looked at it is I've, so far I've learned everything I can on my own on through YouTube and tutorials and online. And I figured if I can do that in my own time and if I just dedicate, you know, a certain amount of time, if I, if I want to have questions, I can keep learning myself and then learn those you know, valuable business skills from people or professors who have been doing that for several years, then they have the experience to, to help me move forward. And that where it's maybe, I mean, maybe you could have done that online too, but I decided to get the business degree, you know, from an institution. So I think it's perfect. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> I had that same crossroad that I had to go down, you know, in, my mom, my mom, and my dad were were very much uh, split on that on trying to help me because my mom was like, "Oh no, he needs to go get a photography degree." My dad's like, "Nope, he's got a good <laughs> basic understanding of that. What he needs is something that you could marry with the business side of photography." Hmm. So you know, I went for a commercial graphics degree, cool. and um, <clears throat> so I think he made a very wise decision. Well, and I look at it, and it's like. He's already, Taylor's already, what, I was 40 years old before I had all that knowledge that he's got it. No, I don't mean, I don't think we've said your age yet. I think you're, right. you're 22, 22, right? 22, right, yeah. So coming to that of the gate at 22 with a business degree, and, you know, you just have a knack for the photography. I think you just, that's an innate talent that you knew you had, you found it really quick, which a lot of people don't, and then you just... It's a passion, right? So you yeah. really don't have to learn a passion, I don't think. I mean, it just comes naturally. You have to hone it, but that passion was already there. So, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have at least figured out, you know, one thing that just kind of speaks to me early on because I do have, 
you know, I have friends back home and, and they're still trying to figure out what their passion mm-hmm. and what they want to do. And it's, it's a lot of people, especially people going to college, you know, they, you have this task of what am I going to do with my life? I got to focus on one degree or something like that. And you know, I know what to do. And that's a lot of people. So I definitely am grateful to have honed in on this thing that I love to do. And, and I don't even think we said that. So, you know, we're on this, what was it? 21 day shoot in South Texas. And yeah, we can't say what it is, but (laughs) you know, we're all working together and, and, um, and Taylor's been doing all the drone work, all the time-lapse work, and all the, the DIT work. And, um, yeah, and your stuff's been awesome, man. I mean, it really has. Um, Thank you. It's been been a pleasure working with him. I mean, oh, yeah. especially, you know, somebody young as he is and knows as much as he does, which is pretty impressive. So you'll go far. I, I, I don't have any questions about that whatsoever. Yeah. Well, and I was – we were talking yesterday. He's like, you know, typical young person stuff. It's like, well, how am I going to do this? Or am I going to make it? Or yeah. it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, dude – you're so far ahead right now that <laughs> yeah. by the time you're 30, you'll be past Doug and I, and you'll That's be right. like running a major production company somewhere. <clears throat> so let's dig into your photo stuff, because I found out yesterday that you work a lot with Nikon. So Ron, no. Well, Ron used to be a Nikon shooter, but the other hosts of the show, Jason and Mark, will be really happy to know that you're Nikon, because they're diehard Nikon. <laughs> cool. So, and I, you've expressed some stuff about Nikon as far as you're not an Nikon ambassador, ambassador at the moment, but I think you're really close to that point. And then you've actually done some projects for them where you actually test lenses and do some different things. So how did you get into that? Or did they find you? Did you find them? Did you, were you a pain in their butt for a while and you just got it? Or did they just <laughs> see your Instagram and they're like, we got to get this guy? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I still, they found me. So I still remember it was the morning. It was first period in my junior year chemistry class. And I remember receiving an email before from Nikon. And I was like, this has got to be like spam, spam. or fish, mm. fish or something. And they basically said they wanted to do an article um, on me. And then in exchange, they'd be giving me uh, Nikon D750 and then the 14 to 24 millimeter lens, which was a huge step up from my current kit. Cause I was shooting on a, a crop sensor. Um, and so this would be my first full frame camera and I was just ecstatic. So, um, that, that went well. And, um, I just stayed in touch with, uh, my contact there. But the thing about probably about like two weeks after I got that camera, I took it out to the beach and, you already know it's coming. <laughs> I'm I'm wading out into the kind of close to knee deep and I step in this huge hole in the waves and I don't see. And so I fall over and half the camera just gets submerged oh. under the water in the ocean and salts. And that's just, it's a yeah. camera killer. So, um, I, I reach out. So I you know, I put it in a bowl of rice for a week and I didn't turn it on. I took everything out and just waited and f- hoped. That was a stressful week and hoped to <laughs> <laughs> cross my fingers that it would turn on. And it did turn on, but it wasn't until like a couple months later I started realizing, oh, when I flip it to video mode, nothing happens. It won't record video. 
And so I had to reach back out to that contact and say, hey, what's the warranty information on this um, since I didn't technically purchase it? And he said, oh, we can fix it. And he came back to me and said, so we found a lot of salt and water damage in the camera. And normally we don't repair these at all, but I'm going to make an exception this time and we'll repair the camera. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And I figured I'd burn that bridge. Right. Like I can't, I, I, don't, I couldn't continue that because I screwed up and I was like, uh, I don't know. But anyways, um, so a couple of years after that, I didn't hear anything from them and didn't really keep in touch. And, um, and then I get a call saying they want me to, uh, speak, do a presentation for them at CES 2019. Um, so that was, that was cool. And I basically did a 30 minute solo presentation for them in, in Las Vegas. And I, that kind of helped me rekindle relationship with them. Um, and almost a year after that, they sent me on a, uh, lens campaign to Chile in the Atacama desert. Um, and they basically, it was the first, it was the, their new mirrorless cameras. It was their 20 millimeter prime uh, 1.8 lens, which is great for star oh, photography. Yeah. So they basically said, we'll give you, you know, tell us what your day rate is and where you want to go. You can go anywhere you want in the world. Oh, hell. And I was like, <laughs> that was <laughs> amazing opportunity. Yeah. Was, but this is November. And you said, I want to go to South Texas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. Um, so I was, yeah, I was kind of overwhelmed because one, I had finals coming up. So, and they gave me about two weeks notice before this trip. So I had to scramble to do all of the, you know, figure out budgeting and locations. And I had to pitch them different locations and they had to approve the final spot. And so I picked, you know, I wanted to go to like Namibia or you know, New Zealand or, or Patagonia or something. And they're like, yeah, we've had a lot of people do that, those locations. We want somewhere new. And one thing that was limiting was I couldn't do any snowy environments because they really wanted colorful. This is for their, well, so I was testing the technical aspects of the lens, but there's also creating promo images for them to be used on their websites and stuff. So they wanted bright, colorful, dynamic looking images. And November, so that kind of rules out a lot of the Northern hemisphere during that time, things are getting snowy. So we settled on the Atacama desert in Chile and I had, this was my fourth choice. So I had heard of this place and I knew it was a great place to do star photography because the stars are awesome. There, sky is really dark and clean. Um, the only problem was I had no idea what was there in terms of foreground and how am I going to make my photographs interesting and stand out and after doing a quick google search i started panicking because it literally <laughs> just looks like <laughs> this empty wasteland <laughs> with red rock and earth and stuff i mean i didn't i really had no idea what i was gonna do but they decided on that location so i went with it but after a further um research i found some local photographers and it turned out it was a really cool place there's a lot to see out there if you if you just dive into the how much time do you have uh it's, i think it's, it's a 10 days so 
He told um, me a little story about it yesterday, too. He's like, <laughs> you were 21. I was 21, yeah. But they don't rent cars to, you have to be 22 in <laughs> Chile to rent a car. Yeah. It's so, crazy. Tell them what you did there. So, most of the car com- companies, they're strict. They're like, no, you have to be 22. You have to be 22. And I found one. I think it was Europe Car. And they rent, apparently on their website, so they rent as young as 18 years old. So I was like, okay, this is my in. But the problem is most of their cars are manual transmission, and I don't know how to drive a stick shift. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, like, okay, I I have very limited, very, very, even more limited than I had to start, (laughs) than I began with. So... The only automatic transmission car they had was a seven-passenger Kia minivan. And people, let me That's tell you. That's a girl getter. I'm going to tell you what. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so people were giving me the strangest looks when I was driving by. They were out in their lifted forerunners and Jeeps just, you know, mobbing through the desert. And I'm out here whipping this minivan on the way to pick up the kids from soccer practice. <laughs> <laughs> And no, it actually did really well and uh, it, it all worked That's out in funny. the end. But yeah, it was definitely my first trip where it was like, this is, you know, I kind of have to self-manage and, and really just fly by the seat of my pants because it was so last minute. And I was there by myself in a in a country I didn't really speak, you know, I took Spanish two in high school and that's about <laughs> my extent of speaking the language, but overall it was a really, really great trip. Yeah. So could you, Doug, could you have done that at 22? Mm-mm. Yeah. Nah. Yeah, yeah, nah. yeah. I don't think so either. I mean, times are different, right? So you, your knowledge of the world based off of the internet is way more vast than when we were kids that, you know, 22, I'm not, it's not a kid, but I mean, it's just, we, yeah. It was the unknown, right? And it was well. We too... didn't have the resource of the access to resources. Uh, you couldn't just Google, you know, where you're going and find out all you need to know. I mean, that didn't exist at all, right? And figure out that it was safe, and figure out that you could rent a car, and figure out that all that stuff. Yeah, was we didn't important. have a cell phone. No, no. So that would have made things a lot more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's amazing that you did that, and I yeah. think it's amazing that that Nikon was the one that sought you out, you know, normally you would think that they would go after a seasoned pro that's going to come up and say, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's smart on their part, in in my opinion, because it's the younger generation that is testing this gear and validating it. And anybody out there of your age or your caliber would say, well, Taylor's using that. I could probably use it. Right. For sure. I think that's a big part of it. I think, Nikon in particular is really trying to dive into a younger audience and reaching out to younger audience because most of their clientele for their high-end cameras at least are seasoned pros and, or just people who can afford that kind of gear. But they're they're also trying to dive into the consumer right. um, base with some of their mirrorless cameras. So I'm I'm guessing that's probably part of the reason why they they pick me. So dig into the what you shoot with Nikon as far as your kit, as far as, I think now you're mirrorless, right? Yes. So what are you using and what is your, like, what's the kit that you bring on shoots? Yeah. So um, 
right now I'm I'm using two Nikon Z6 bodies. Um, they just came out with a Z6 II, which I'm trying to get my hands on. Um, and that's their their video is slightly behind um, Sony and Canon, uh, but they are they are making some good improvements on that with their uh, latest cameras. Um, but so two Z6 IIs, um, you know, 2470, 14 to 30, um, and 7200, you know, that holy grail kind of zoom lenses. I have a couple primes, uh, 35 millimeter, and then I have a super telephoto lens, which I just got, uh, the two to 500 F56, which for its price, it's actually, I think it's, I think retail is probably less now, but retail is like $1,400. And that's, yeah. That's a pretty good price for a, a long lens, and it's it's uh, the quality is works well for that price. Um, and I really enjoy the time lapse. So Nikon does a really great job. They've for for a long time before any Sony or Cameron, Canon cameras came out with this, they had built-in intervalometer for time lapse, so you didn't have to actually have a remote you could do all your time lapses internal in the body. And now they have, um, an exposure smoothing feature that really helps, uh, if you're, if you're doing like day to night time lapses and it helps get rid of some of that flicker in body. And, um, yeah, they, they do a good job with that, uh, for sure. And, and their whole mirrorless system is, is just very sharp, especially their lenses. I mean, Nikon especially is probably has some of the highest quality lenses now that the mirror the mirrorless uh lenses are super super sharp um i think so when i was doing that 20 millimeter lens campaign uh about two-thirds of the way through the shoot the ad um or the advertising agency that nikon hired sent out someone to test well to kind of check in on things but also to send um he sent. He was sent with a Sigma twenty millimeter and a Tamron twenty millimeter, and because he wanted to really test the the edge to edge sharpness right. at f one eight, and there's a really big. There's like no that coma flare you get with the stars mm -hmm. where if you're shooting wide open, some of the um, edges of the stars get that kind of butterfly looking effect. There's none on this lens, and you can really noticeable difference between the the two off brand lenses, but. I'm curious. Was the Sigma lens? Was it an art lens? It was an art it was, lens. It was really? the one four. So it wasn't at one eight, but it was one four. Because um, I've got that lens, and, and I, I mean, it's a great lens, but I don't do a lot of nighttime stuff. No, I yeah, I I uh, rolled with the thirty five millimeter prime from Sigma. I actually still use it quite a bit. Um, I do think it's a great lens. So how did you get from? That, I mean, that's a great calling card, right? So that's a great resume builder, right? Now you're shooting or you're participating as crew shooting and doing all kinds of stuff for huge natural history productions. How did that happen? How did that evolve? How did you like, you know, so many people just fall into it or you have yeah. a buddy or you have, you know, it's your network or, and everybody's got a different story. Mm -hmm. what what happened for you because if i could have done what you're doing when i was 22 oh my gosh it would be amazing yeah so um this summer this past summer was the first time i really got introduced into the whole natural history production uh world and 
it's the first summer since the pandemic started. So my normal plans, uh, I was going to be working as the outdoor videographer for an expedition-based cruise line called Seaborn up in southeast Alaska. And so I'd be, you know, going out and, and getting videos for of the guests uh, aboard, you know, with doing bear watching, hikes and kayaking and all that and compile film for them. So that whole gig got canceled because they're the travel industry, which and they got hit hard by the pandemic. So I was kind of left trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do for this <laughs> summer to make some money? Um, and... Uh, I have a buddy, uh, uh, his name's Andrew Studer, and he, for the last couple of years, we've been uh, going back to Mount Rainier. It's like an annual uh, pilgrimage, 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 Jesus. Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. There we go. (laughs) We we got there. All right. (laughs) Um, We'd be going back to Mount Rainier uh, every summer for a couple of years and be shooting time lapses and, and stuff like that. And so he put together a short little clip of that. And uh, one of the production companies reached out and saw that and said, hey, we're looking for a camera operator um, to film uh, in this location. And basically, he needed an AC. So uh, he was doing the scenics. And I was like, yeah, I've got nothing else to do. Like, let's let's do it. And, um, it was a lot of fun. So he would do the, um, using the movie op. So we'd dual op that and he'd be holding it. I'll do the, I'll do the, uh, uh, follow focus. And, um, just, it was just a blast. It was, it was, it was just a blast being out there. And at the same time, uh, I also started acing for uh, another camera operator that was doing, um, a wildlife sequence out there at the same time. So I was acing for two of two of these guys, um, and kind of got involved in that whole world doing DIT and, uh, talking with all the different producers and stuff and, um, got on a couple more shoots later that year. And, um, uh, after that, I just, um, I guess I got some recommendations to other producers at different companies and, uh, just started getting more, more gigs, uh, slow, more slowly, you know, it started slowly at first and it's not super consistent yet, but, uh, hopefully I can, I can keep getting more and more, um, gigs with these companies. And mostly it was AC work at first. So I'd be assistant. And, um, there's times where I was like, you know, this is, I know this is not exactly what I want to be doing. It's a stepping stone, but I recognize there are tons of people that would love to be in my position right now. And I'm super grateful for that. And I just got to, you know, stay humble and just, you know, this is, there's, there's, you always got to start somewhere. Right. So, um, I was a great opportunity to, to kind of get involved in this world. And this is, I remember being a kid watching the first planet earth series come out and just kind of being baffled. And it'd be like, I could see myself doing that one day. And I don't know how that's going to happen, but that would be really cool to be a part of that. Um, and now it's, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really really realize that until I said that, but now it's like, (laughs) we're getting closer. So that's, it's been a fun journey so far. Yep. Awesome. Oh, so you were saying yesterday though, you were happy that 
you were doing the AC stuff because it's not like you get thrown in. Yes, that's a good point. Talk about that a little bit because I I agree with you 100%. I mean, right. getting thrown in and saying, hey, can you just go run that red camera and get something cool? Right. That's a big load to be putting on your shoulders when you're just getting started. Right. So, so my friend Andrew and I, we were both, he was definitely thrown into this quicker than I was because um, we had both really never had much experience with a red camera. And we spent... 48 hours total, just, you know, going over the camera, building it out and trying out every practicing with it in the local park and stuff. And, um, it was, it was a lot to take in at first, but you know, you start picking up on it over time. And, um, it was still to be in his position to get thrown into that firsthand would, he's under a lot of stress. This is my, this is like big production at first. And, you know, I don't, you don't want to screw up. And, and so it was kind of nice being an AC and just being able to sit back and see how these things go without having that stress of being the actual camera operator right off the bat. When stuff goes south, you can say, well, wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you but, know that guy named Andrew? That's it was him. <laughs> 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 Let me tell you a funny quick story. My first experience with the with the red <clears throat> and it was uh it was uh the first big shoot that I'd ever done um for BBC. And they sent a, I was a second camera, they sent a camera operator and he brought all the kit and the researcher and producer were there and they rented a house for us to all stay in. And there was like 30 Pelican cases. on the, They unloaded onto the porch. And very quickly, the producer said, all right, Doug, these five cases, that's got your kid in it. And the other camera operator said, all right, those are yours. And they're like, you know, go ahead and, you know, start putting, putting your stuff together and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) What am I going to do? I'd run a red before. I had never built one. It was just kind of a situation like, eh, jump on here. That's what you do and go for it. Run it. And um, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I went to the, promptly went to the kitchen and I made me a huge snack. And I came back out on the porch, and I was just taking my time. It took me like four hours to eat one bowl of Cheetos because I was trying to watch the other camera operator put his together. <laughs> but and, not be obvious about it. Probably. Uh, but yeah, I was just talking, you know, and just you know, just having a big time. And then it got time. I was like, okay, well, I got to dive into this. And I, I got hung up on and I, almost a couple of steps and um, and I would run to the bathroom with my phone <laughs> <laughs> and Google, okay, what is a rail? <laughs> Where does it go? <laughs> but I, I, I mean, it was kind of like, you know, not going to college class every day and you show up for final exams. <laughs> mm, right, exactly. That is it. <laughs> so I, I got through it. Thank God. Jeez. I don't know that I have a story like that because I'm I'm paranoid. I'm super. You just don't want to show up to a shoot and not know what the heck's going on. 
But I will tell you, I learned some. I've been doing this for a long time and using these cameras, and I still learn mm-hmm. something every, every day. Every day. There's always something, you know, even on this shoot, you pick, you pull out something. Actually, I think we should talk about it because the cam ranger. Yeah. You know, it was one of those things where I'd heard about it and you know, there's so many gadgets out there, right? There's so many things out there in this world and, and you'd look at them and they just fly by night and it's like, ah, that would, yeah, maybe it's cool. Maybe it's not, I'm not going to do it, but you had used it before yeah. and you're like, we got to get this shot. The only way I can think about doing it is with the cam ranger. And I'm like, it kind of sparked a little thing. Like, I've got one. I've never used it, but I've got one. <laughs> I think it, you know, I just wasn't willing to try it out. But you were like, this will do it. And it kind of speaks to what Taylor said earlier. We spent, what, an afternoon testing those things out. Yeah. To make sure it was going to work as advertised or work to get the shot that we were trying to get. So... Explain what we can't talk about the shots, but right. explain about what that is and and how it helped us. Basically, it's a, it's a, a remote operations device. It's a Wi-Fi device that allows you to control any DSLR or mirrorless camera from uh, you know a smartphone or iPad or anything like that. Um, I mean, you have full control, even focus. Um, you know, all your exposure settings. Uh, focus, uh, then you can stop, start, record, you can take images, you can do time lapses, and you can actually see exactly what the camera is seeing from, you know, three to 500 feet away. So in this particular situation, you know, we needed to to get in front of the animal uh, without them seeing us. And so, uh, yeah, so the, the, the camera ranger version that I had previously used on a beaver shoot uh it worked flawlessly and but now i have not used it for a year or so and now the the new cameras are coming out and the new cam ranger came out and only the new one is is compatible with uh, we were using r5s canon r5 for for that particular shot because that's the only thing that would would do it and and it worked like charm you know but we had to we had to upgrade to the newest one real quick like Okay, Amazon, next day delivery. That's <laughs> how they always get you. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it, it worked flawlessly. It sure did. Um, but it took some testing. I mean, you know, it's just like radios. I mean, they say, okay, you get, you know, five mile, you know, talk distance on this radio in ideal conditions. And it's the same thing with Cam Ranger. Um, you know, it, it definitely has, it's not a perfect uh, device, which nothing is, because in my mind, ideal conditions never exist. Um, <clears throat> that's laboratory testing. <laughs> so, uh, but it worked. It worked well enough to to do what we need to do. And it's, I mean, it's a great little inexpensive device to have. It's another tool. You know, I mean, my gosh, how many tools do we have? And I just loaded my truck with, you know, probably twenty some cases, Pelican cases, and. That still doesn't cut it always, you know. There's no. always something else, um, you know. We roll into shoots where we bring our own gear, but then they send the whole kit, and what they send is supposed to work, but it never does. Yeah, You never have every little piece you need to operate the way you want to operate. It works, and we could work. We could make it all. We could get footage. Yeah, But if you want that sweet setup like you're used to using, you got to kind of have your own camera op kit 
that just goes with you everywhere that kind of works with all these different cameras. I don't want to get too far away from Taylor's story, but just a perfect example of that is so I, if I don't travel with anything else, the one piece of kit that doesn't matter how much kit they send, they may say, we've got everything you could possibly want. I always travel with my own personal follow focus unit <laughs> because to this day, I only know of one brand follow focus. And to my knowledge, they have discontinued the version that I have. It is the only one that is reversible. Many of them are flippable, meaning that you can flip the follow focus to the opposite side of the lens. So if you had a focus puller on either side of the lens, it, you could do that. Um, but it's not reversible. In other words, you can't. Um, you can't change the throw of the lens, the, the direction of the, the focus ring. Um, so I always bring my own and I always end up having to use it every single time. Don't ask me what I'm going to do when that breaks <laughs> because I don't know. I've been, been looking all over eBay for old used ones that I could hoard. I think we might have to uh, make our own. I yeah. mean, because it really is just adding another gear to yeah. an existing. So what he's talking about is... And I've shot with Doug for a long time, and he's the one who actually, when we were doing the Florida Panthers, is when yep. we, yep. when I figured it out, and you had figured it out prior to that. He's like, check this out. So when you're photographing wildlife, you want to, you want everything to be thoughtless, right? You just want to be able to go into autopilot and do what you do, right? Well, these follow focus, the way they're normally set up, as you pull back, it's focusing further away. And as you roll forward, it's focusing closer. Well, we want it. So if you the animal's coming to you, you want to pull that focus wheel to you. Yeah. Much easier to just get in sync with that animal. And everything in video right yeah. now is manual focus. When you're using these bigger cameras, it's all manual. So you can't, you know, you can't screw it up. You've got to kind of stick with it. So when you pull back or roll back, it comes with you with the animal comes into the into closer to the camera and it just is thoughtless yeah it's more natural it is way more i have to simplify things in order to you know to be able to follow through with them quickly and so you know a bird in flight i mean that's hard to focus on anyway so any of that rocking back and forth trying to find that you know where it cracks into focus and by the time you do that it's already it's, it's through that focal plane already and you know so you find yourself you know just going back and forth back and forth back and forth but if you can if you know okay <clears throat> if you look through the monitor and then the bird is angling away or flying away or flying toward you you know which way and instinctively to turn the, the follow focus and then then it's just a matter of getting it to crack into focus and then you find the rate of speed that the bird is moving or the subject's moving and the rate of speed at which you need to turn that that follow focus wheel and you're, it's just so much easier but well and it's easy for doug because he happens to be like the best i know no. at that by no. a long shot because no, 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 no. i've tried it and i'm like okay doug makes this look so easy so <laughs> no I'm no gonna, no i'm <laughs> gonna just roll in and it never works like I, I mean i think mike you told me a story that doug would just get good at at pulling focus like by passing cars mm, you just like that's practice. how i learned yeah. that's awesome and yeah. you just you know, wait for the next one and then do it all over again until it's just dialed in and becomes muscle memory. I was the weird dude that was sitting in a, one of those <laughs> 1970s lawn chairs. You remember the ones that had the woven nylon patches under the bottom of it? 
sitting on the side of the road in the front yard. And as the cars would come toward me, I was sitting there and I would do it with still camera back in the, the film days and slide days. And I would just I would just focus, 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 and I would dry fire, you know, the camera as it's getting closer and then as it passes going further away because when the subject gets closer to you, the amount that you have to focus you know, the, the amount of throw you have to put on the lens is, is exponentially increased. Right. So, um, so yeah, so when I got to the point that I thought, yeah, I felt like I was nailing it, that's when I started putting fi- actual film in the camera and, and doing it. And I was like, oh, no, hell no, I need to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that's what I did. I just did it over and over and over again. So it's a great little exercise for anybody who wants to learn how to do it. Yeah, I mean, because birds, I mean, cards are one thing. It's a big old thing rolling yeah, at you. Right. Birds, I mean, you're talking a sixteenth of the frame sometimes. How do you how do you follow with that? I yeah. don't know. And but that speaks to what you were talking about earlier. You just gotta get out there and try it and, and stick with it and go into town mm-hmm. or go into San Francisco and maybe it's not the nature that you wanna be doing, but you it got you here. Yeah. Right? Yeah, definitely. You gotta you just work with what's around you and you know, hone hone your skills with what you got, and then get good at that, and eventually you'll move on to the next next thing. So, next would way. you say, Taylor, your your niche right now, and everybody's niche kind of changes, or or at least develops um, bigger and bigger and bigger. So, your niche, I know you do drone, or you do DIT, you know, photography, the whole nine yards, but your niche right now, would you say the the time lapse stuff? Is that what is significantly sending your career up the ladder? Um, I'd say a uh, combination of uh, I still do still do a lot of still photos. Um, I enjoy, you know, trying to do fine art um, as well. But yeah, time so time lapse is definitely something I still do regularly. Um, uh, I put out different time-lapse films. I'll have different uh, personal projects. And a lot of that is involving time-lapse or a mix of time-lapse and drone work. And um, it's those personal projects that that really get new clients to, to see your work and if you put them online. And um, that usually helps drive up business. And um, they're, they're fun to work on. And, um, but, you know, as you get busier and busier, I, you know, I'm already starting to see that I have a personal project in the works, but I'm trying to figure out oh, when, when to do it. When am I going <laughs> to keep working on this? <laughs> yeah. But, um, in terms of, uh, you know, not my niche in, in natural history, I don't even, I don't even know what that is. Cause there's, you know, there's long lens work, there's camera trapping, there's all sorts of different things. And I would love the opportunity to try it all just to see, but, um, for now, I definitely do like doing the time lapse and uh, aerial parts of it. And it's the best way scenics. to get on a shoot, right? Yeah. Because once you're there, you know, like yesterday, had we seen something, I would have let you play with the red and play with the long lens, but we just didn't find anything. But right. those opportunities arise once you get out there. And then you can say, yeah, well... I don't haven't run it on a full on project, but I've actually run that camera. And that's or, what I try to do with a lot of young guys. <clears throat> if if you know if they're helping me on a shoot or something, and you know I can just see them see them drooling over the camera, going, "Yeah, man, I want to run that thing," <laughs> you know. And I was like, "Come on, yep. get up here." Ain't no, no nobody here but me and you. Come on, run it. 
And <laughs> you know, and and it, that's the only way they're going to get time on the camera. And so I try to pay it forward in that regards. And it's never going to happen. You know, this shoot was awesome because you have so many days. If you know you've got everything, then uh, putting out part of that time to give somebody right. a chance is yeah. it's great. Yep. It's awesome to do. Definitely. So um, one thing you mentioned earlier was doing these personal projects. You actually had one of your personal projects picked up by what, a staff pick on Vimeo, too. That probably had to add some fire into the flame. Yeah, that was uh, that was definitely cool. And, and um, I'm not sure how big staff picks on Vimeo are nowadays. But to me, like that was definitely always something I wanted to get on one of my one of my films. Uh, I think it was the third one of my third personal projects I've put out. Um, and that was, uh, it's called Denali because it was filmed in Denali. <laughs> Very creative. Name. Very creative. Everybody. <laughs> um, but it was, it, so I basically, this was the summer after my freshman year of college, a buddy and I decided, well, okay. Fast forward or sorry, flashback to, to my last, my latest shot, my first timeout film I put out, I got an email from someone saying they had in a guest apartment up in Alaska, if I'd ever wanted to come stay and create another film like that up there. And I said, well, I got, I'm doing this this summer, but maybe next summer. Um, so I did it that next summer and I went up with a friend and we drove from, uh, Sacramento, California, all the way up to the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska and spent the whole trip was total about five weeks. Um, and it was just an absolutely mind boggling. Just, it was, I don't even, still speechless because yeah, that's awesome. there's nothing quite like Alaska. I think it's, it's really amazing place. Uh, the scale of it just, yeah, it just leaves you standing there with your mouth open. Um, so the last couple days of the trip, uh, were spent in Denali. It's like three days. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go there at a time where there was interesting weather on some days and some days the mountain was actually out. So, uh, I think what the first day I actually did the whole bus tour going all the way to the 80 mile road. It's like a whole day thing. You know, you go all the 80 and they stop at certain spots and, um, let people get out for 10 or 20 minutes. I was like, Oh, 10 or 20 minutes. You know, that's not a whole lot of time to time lapse. Right. But on this particular day, the conditions were so dynamic. I stepped out of the bus and it was like, I was watching a time lapse with my own eyes happen wow. before me. Things were moving so fast. The light was moving like across the landscape, sweeping rays and, um, just rain squalls coming in the distance and creating this nice hazy atmosphere. Um, so I was able to set my interval at one or two seconds and get a decent amount of footage, uh, from, from just the 10 or 20 minute stops we'd have on, on the Tenali bus cool. tour. And then the days surrounding too, I would, I would go to like the old Denali highway or something and, and, spend more time shooting along there as well. But, um, did you drive a Kia minivan for that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't drive a Kia minivan. No, I drove, but it wasn't much better. <laughs> because, well, okay. 
now that car is definitely on its last legs. This is my parents bought 2001 Toyota Highlander first, like right when it came out and they've put 185,000 miles on it and I own it now and it's probably got close to 225, 230. So after that trip though, that car was not the same. <laughs> that, that did a number on that car, but it, yeah, it was a great car that they got us up there. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I put out that short little timeout. So I wasn't really expecting anything. I was just like, I have the footage. What am I going to do with it? Let's put something together. And it was like a day or two after that, I got a staff pick on Vimeo and yeah, it was, that was cool. Nice yeah, little. no, I think it's a good builder. I mean, that's a good way to get noticed. Yeah, for sure. So what, for people that don't do time-lapse, what's the best way to get started and what's the best, what are you looking for? When you're looking to build a time-lapse, what are you looking for? Because you've mentioned a few things along the way and, and we all do them a lot so we understand what, what it is, but I don't think the whole audience knows. Sure. So as you're going out and as you're given an assignment or you're doing a personal project, what are the things that you think about to make a really cool time-lapse? And let's just say it's yeah. a... Let's keep it one thing, like a daytime, sure. afternoon, evening time lapse. What would you do? So we can talk two aspects. One is gear and two, like the gear you need. And then two is technique. So before you even start your time lapse for gear, you need a really sturdy tripod. Um, because your camera has to sit on, you know, has to be completely still the entire time while it's taking pictures. Um, and if it's, if you have like a, I've, I've been there, I've had like this, you know, cheapo $50 tripods from Best Buy and sometimes they don't hold their own and will get knocked over or even jostled, uh, by wind. So that's really important. Um, having intervalometer is important if you don't have a built in, um, in, into the camera system. Uh, and that's pretty much it for gear. Those, those are the basics for gear. Um, and for technique, it depends on what your environment is doing around you. Um, but you need to decide, one, you have to have a lot of movement. That's what makes time-lapse really special is you're speeding up time over, you know, over the, over time to, to see all these things happening that you wouldn't be able to see with your own naked eye. So the more movement and the more kind of dynamic things happening, the better for the most part. Um, and so you have to see, okay, are the clouds moving in the sky? How fast are they going? Are they slow moving clouds? Okay. They're moving a little bit slower. So then you need to figure out, I need to set my interval. So how far apart do I want to be taking these pictures? Cause the further apart your interval is the faster your time-lapse is going to go by. So if you have a five second interval, taking a picture once or every five seconds, um, you know, there's a lot that can happen in those five seconds as opposed to taking a picture every second or every two seconds, which the time lapse is going to appear, the the scene is going to be appear to be moving slower. So if the clouds are moving faster or whatever, if it's maybe like a, a river or fast moving river or something with a lot of movement, then I'd recommend for the most smooth results to pick an interval, um, a slower interval or a shorter interval. So maybe every one or two seconds, if it's a really just dead calm day, or you're trying to get a time-lapse of maybe the, the sun 
going across the entire sky throughout the entire day. You want to do a full day time lapse from sunrise to sunset. Then you want to pick a longer interval of maybe 15 or 30 seconds. Um, and that'll obviously, if you pick an interval of every second, you're going to end up with a bazillion frames for that long period of time. And, um, it's just going to be not worth it. Um, but, uh, Basically, yeah, your interval is your most important part and, you know, you have to determine how long do I want it and do a little bit of math for how many shots am I going to take. Um, if you're shooting for a client, sometimes they might only have a certain amount of time allotted for your time lapse um, to be a transition scene or something like that. So you have to say, okay, they're giving me 10 seconds. So I, I need this amount of frames at this interval is going to be this amount of time. It's going to give me those 10 seconds and you kind of have to gauge it and just practice, practice, practice is going to help you pick up more on that over time. Um, and it's overall, it's just a really rewarding process. I really enjoy it personally is because most, most of the time on shoots, I'm always rushing around doing one thing or another. And I don't really get the time sometimes to, to really soak in what's around me and, the only memories I have left of where I was were just through my photographs because honestly, you're, you're rushing around so much, you really don't have time to appreciate it. But time-lapse forces you to do that. You set up your tripod and your camera. Sometimes if you're doing more advanced time-lapse on a slider, um, you just let that run and you can sit back and you can work on something else too if you want or you can just sit there and be like, yeah, this is the place I'm in. Kind of soak it all in and I really appreciate it. Or set up multiple time lapses, yeah, which I know oh, you've yeah. been doing on this shoot. Yeah. <clears throat> and then he runs off and runs a drone, and he's got yeah. six time lapses going <laughs> and a drone, and then he eats lunch in the middle. And, and then downloads our cards <laughs> in, the, in between his spare time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Out of uh, all of the time lapses that you do, what would you say the percentage are that work? I mean, would you – because you do it professionally now. And I just want people to know that it's not all, you don't always you get the nail perfect, everyone. Yeah. So uh, what would you say your percentage is? So, uh, for so just talking about the nighttime lapses I'm doing on this particular shoot, I've had almost a hundred percent fail rate. I've only done like <laughs> three of them so far. I've got a couple, but there's, you know, there's things to consider like, Oh, one of the time lapses, my lens fogged up with condensation. And then there's, Okay, I'll, next time up to do, I'll I'll try to prevent do something to prevent that. Oh, but this time my camera's it's shooting the night sky, so it's facing a city. So there's a lot of light pollution in the sky, which isn't really that natural look you're going for. And okay, next time lapse I got to do something. So you learn from them, but yeah, sometimes a lot of these time lapses don't really go through, or there's certain there's certain environmental aspects that you weren't aware of with your naked eye that. Um, or if the wind is blowing the the branches or something and it looks kind of gross and uh, just statically looking, uh, it's it, it wouldn't work out. It's, it's not a clean look I was going for. So you say, okay, I'm going to use a neutral density filter to smooth out that motion next time if I'm shooting during the wind. And you just basically learn from each time lapse uh what to do better for the next time so yeah there's a lot of just trial and error until you finally get those good ones so i like, let me ask one more question and doug's got a question you just said neutral density so explain that i think our audience would like to 
hear that too. I know what you're talking about as far as slowing down your shutter speed, right? Right. Or, or slowing what? Explain that. Right. So neutral density filter or ND filter is it's basically a high quality. Well, depending on the company, you can get you can get basically a high quality uh, piece of glass. It's very dark. Um, it's got a tint to it, but it's made to be put over your camera lens um, so you can slow down your shutter speed during the daytime. So at nighttime, there's no problem. You can do long exposures. You can bump your shutter speed up to 30 seconds, no problem, because your camera is hungry for that light. It's soaking in all the available light from from the darkness or from the, the lack of light that's in the sky. But in the daytime, if you try to do a 30-second exposure or even just a second or one one or two-second exposure, it'd just be blown out. It'd be mostly white um, because there's too much light entering your camera's sensor during that time. So in order to, to get a smoother uh, effect, um, especially during time-lapse, these longer exposures really help smooth out your frames as you compile the file, final sequence together. So um, in order to achieve those longer exposures, you need that darker piece of glass um, to be put in front of your camera's lens to kind of simulate uh, that darker environment that you would have at nighttime so you can get those one or two second exposures in the daytime. So um, if there is a lot of motion, if you're on a windy day and you're shooting uh, a wide open field or a tree and you can notice that the tree is shaking violently in the wind. It's not going to look really great if you're having a really fast shutter speed and one frame, the tree is in one position, the next frame it's back and it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. It's going to look very jittery. Uh, so in order to help kind of combat that, you can use an ND filter to smooth out the exposure so the tree is less jittery and your frames are, are smoother. Um, so it's basically sunglasses for a camera. That's, uh, you know, <laughs> that is a great yeah. way to do it because uh, it's a great way to explain it. So, you know, just ignore what I said because that, <laughs> fast forward to that point, it's sunglasses for a camera. Yeah. Exactly. It's like your eye. Yeah, it's too bright out and you need sunglasses to help to help see better. Yep. Speaking of eye patches, <laughs> oh, God. tell us a little bit about what you have experienced this week in oh. this completely windless, dustless, pristine, pristine environment <laughs> that we've been working in this week. So yeah, it is a bit dusty where we are, a little bit sandy where we are. And I wear contact lenses. Uh, my vision ironically as a photographer videographer is just not great uh for far away distances so i gotta wear contact lenses um and for most of the shoot it's it's been all right i've been able to see and work fine and no problems at all but it's when i get in those dustier and sandier environments especially when the winds pick up where we are uh there is a lot of grit and a lot of dust that unfortunately got underneath one of my contact lenses on my right eye. And um, I noticed kind of a stinging as I was I was coming back in for the night. And um, I kind of just monitored it a little bit. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I was like, we turned on the light 
and I just like, I was like searing hot, white, hot pain in my, in my right eye. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, something's not right here. So I went into the eye doctor and they said, you have a corneal abrasion. So basically some sand or something had gotten under my contacts. And when I blink or move my eye around, it had uh, cut open uh, part of my cornea, which is the outer layer of your eye. And it just made everything really painful. My eye was kind of like dilated permanently for a little bit and completely red and really sensitive to light. And typically, thankfully, like these things happen, like more minor uh, corneal abrasions can go away on their own in like a day or two. And you won't get those, um, those light sensitivity issues. But for the deeper ones, yeah, your eye just kind of freaks out and says, no, 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 you can't do this anymore. I need some time to heal. And so it gives you those those warning, those warning signals. And so it was a bummer. Like I, I, I kind of missed out my last couple of days of drone filming with the drone and stuff. But, um, I was able to work on those nighttime lapses cause <laughs> I didn't have the sun in my eye the whole day. I but. came in for lunch and, <laughs> and he's sitting at the computer with the, with his back to me and he turns around and I'm like, my God, it's Captain Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, it's just basically a peach, a piece of gauze taped on my eyes. It's the only eye patch they had. It was really lame. Yeah, I told him it just for being where we're at and you got the coast over here. I mean, it'd be nice to have a real pirate's patch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. So is there anything else that you think as a young photographer that is that anything that you can put out there for younger people just to dig in or find a client or build a business or follow an inspiration. Yeah. Um, so I think if it comes, if it comes to like working as a photographer, really just find, find an, uh, photographer or artist or someone you look up to and really follow, look at their style or, or look at, say, say you, want, you want to work in the outdoor industry and you look at Patagonia or some outdoor, big outdoor company, look at their style and start practicing and posting photos of that style. And just keep really try to, if you really want to work with a, a client or a company or, or kind of, you know, if you look up to a photographer and you want to be like, um, have work similar to them, try to try to look at their style and look at their work and try to gain inspiration from them. And inspiration like that doesn't have to just come from a photographer either. It can come from anything. So um, I talked I talk on one of my Nikon talks, I talked a little bit about overcoming creative ruts because everyone has it. Everyone falls into those times where it's just like, I'm not feeling any inspiration. I don't know, you know, I don't feel creative anymore. Uh, that that happens. It just happens. It's, it's ebbs and flows. So just, just try to switch up your genres. And if you're still trying to figure out what specific genre you want to do, just try everything. And eventually you'll, you'll find that genre you really like, and then just keep, keep diving and dive just head first into it and just immerse yourself in it. And you'll only get better. That's awesome. Excellent. So before we go, where can people see your work? Website, Instagram, Facebook, I'm sure you got all of them. Yeah, so you can um you can visit my website, www.taylorgrayvisuals.com. Um Gray is G R A Y 
And then my Instagram is Taylor Gray Photo. Uh, Facebook, I tried out for a bit, and the algorithm didn't really like me very well. So <laughs> I said, I don't like you either. I kind of fell off of Facebook a little bit. But uh, yeah, Instagram's usually my go-to for posting my most recent work. Um, awesome. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a pleasure working with you. It really has. Yep. Yeah. I've learned a lot from you guys already, though. So it's it's, it's been awesome to, to be on the sheet with you. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way